Well, take your copy of the Word of God with me and open up to the Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Mark will be in chapter 14 this morning, and in a moment we'll read from verses 32 through 42. Well, the Bible is a book, a story, indeed history is a story with a garden on both ends. And the Bible opens with a garden, and the Bible closes with a garden. The whole earth is a new creation. Eden across the whole earth. And there's no being in either of those gardens apart from perfect, perfect obedience. That's why Adam was sent out, and it's why humanity lives under the curse outside the garden today. And no one will make it to that final garden, the new creation, apart from perfect obedience. Maybe you're here this morning and you would say that when you die, you're safe with God and you deserve to be in that final garden, deserve to go to heaven, been good enough. And maybe you hesitate there a little bit because you know you're not perfect, but maybe you think that you're perfect enough if that's a thing. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're just pretty sure there's no hope for you. And there's no way you'd get into that final garden. You're outside the garden and under the curse, and that's how it's always going to be for you. I don't know what you've done, and neither does anybody else, but you know what you've done. You feel guilty, and you feel like there isn't any hope. Well, we can thank God that there's also a garden in the middle of the Bible, and something very important happened there, and it addresses all of us this morning. Let's read together. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We've been making our way through the gospel, according to Mark, for now just about a year. And at times, the clip has been good and fast. In fact, most of the time, the clip in this story is good and fast. We're we're flipping the calendar, as it were, through through the year and through the years one movement after another, 
Well, things have slowed down, very slow. We're watching the hands on the clock now. And the time that we have in, in this passage may have taken place over an hour or several hours in the middle of the night. And so we're paying attention. Over the next number of weeks in this book, we'll be moving equally as slowly as we approach the cross, as we are all together, as we've said, on the path with Jesus, on the path of the cross, the path of his cross and the path he calls us onto, the path of the cross ourselves. There are a number of contrasts that we just can't miss as we parachute into this passage The scene just before was the upper room scene where Jesus told his disciples about his death, and he did so in a bit of a different way than he had before, but he spoke of his body broken and and the cup of of his blood. He spoke of how they would flee, and the shepherd would be struck, and the sheep would scatter, and so there's an anticipation of trouble to come. The air is tense. There's an uncertainty about when all this will go down. There's a sobriety about all of it. But now we're in a garden, Gethsemane, on a hill just outside Jerusalem in a valley, and it's whisper quiet. There's another contrast here. On one side of the garden, you've got one man struggling with a cosmic battle a cup that we'll learn about. A terrible, terrifying moment. And on the other side of the garden, you have some disciples struggling to keep their heads up, struggling to stay awake. On one side of the garden, death, suffering has caught up with Jesus. And on the other side of uh, the garden, The disciples are catching up on some sleep. Let's work our way through this dense, difficult, important scene in three stops. We'll look at Jesus together. We'll listen to Jesus and what he says to his Father. And then we'll learn from Jesus concerning our weakness and watchfulness. So let's look at him. And when we look at him in verses 32 through 34, we see Jesus in great, great distress. We see our Lord in great distress. We have a privileged view here from our seats. It's a better view than the disciples as a group had. Jesus enters the garden. He leaves the the disciples, his group of 12, save three, maybe near the front end of entry. You sit here while I pray. Implication, you pray. Well, then he took with him, though, three of them, Peter, James, and John. He took with him the three and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And then he goes a little farther off, we're told. So now Jesus is alone. He's in earshot of the disciples. That's presumably how we have the record of the things that he says here to his father. I suppose Jesus could have recorded those things or reported those things to the disciples after his resurrection. I'm sure they had plenty of chats, and I'm sure the disciples had plenty of questions. But we just might guess they're close enough to witness this, and and that's Jesus's purpose for them to do so. 
These three had been with Jesus alone before. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, up on the hill, and is transfigured into radiant glory, with a brightness like the sun, his, his clothes shone, and he was seen in all of his divine glory as sun in that moment. And he was there with Moses and Elijah. Jesus is the great one to whom all of the Old Testament prophets have pointed. Uh, he is not on par with them. And they learned that much there on that mountain. They had seen Jesus and it was a sight to behold and a sight they needed to see as they headed into these more treacherous days with Jesus and their time with him, where their lives would feel threatened, where it would seem like Jesus didn't know what he was doing and maybe lost his mind. No, that vision of Jesus in his radiant divine glory would help to carry them through. So they'd been with Jesus alone before. But now they see Jesus falling to the ground. He falls to the ground. And he is in great distress. You know, it's uncharacteristic of Jesus at this point uh, to be doing this kind of thing. He's prayed before, but they haven't seen him, as he says, sorrowful to the point of death. It's the decision that Jesus made to bring them in on this, and it's good for us to see our Lord in agony. I was just thumbing around for some leadership articles this morning, not because I was trying to learn about leadership. It just occurred to me that this is not a normal thing for leaders to do. Uh, vulnerability is an important thing, and, and uh, leaders should be vulnerable and honest. Uh, but this would, this would freak your team out. This would, this would put people on edge. Uh, this would scare them. Five ways leaders accidentally stress out their employees was one piece. Leaders must pay a great deal of attention to how they act and communicate. The importance of this is exacerbated during times of increased uncertainty. So we often look to leaders to guide us in the face of fear to provide us with clarity and direction, and most of all, to give us reasons to remain hopeful and optimistic. So avoid negative language. As the growing field of algorithmic text mining and natural language processing shows, there's a systematic and robust connection between the type and frequency of words we choose to express ourselves and our moods and temperaments. Research has shown that to avoid accidentally triggering anxiety through language, Best practice is to refrain from using negative words like horrific, shocking, and dangerous in your emails. Well, that all makes sense. And leaders, you know, beware your, your mood and your mode and your tone and all of that does affect your people. Be honest. Live before them truly, uh, but don't freak them out. Jesus is freaking out his disciples. Can you imagine seeing him here? And Mark records him. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. That, that word has to do with alarm. Jesus is shocked. You can imagine Jesus shocked and alarmed, arrested. Not yet exactly, but spiritually arrested, emotionally troubled, distraught. He's undone. He's a mess as we say it. 
They were ready for this. And he puts words to it. He breaks the rule. My soul is very sorrowful. How sorrowful, Jesus? Even to death. I'm not exactly sure what he means by that. It could be such sorrow that it could take his life. Not that he believes that's how it will end, but that it's of a kind and a nature and a, and a drama and a deepness that it's hard to imagine coming out of this. It could mean that it's so great that there are other things we'll learn about Jesus and what he wants, but just humanly speaking, he would rather be dead. Horror is a good word. You know, I don't know if a particular moment in your own life comes to mind. It'd be okay to, to go there for a moment. Maybe when you hear the words, I'm divorcing you. And everything changes. And your stomach is sick and you can't breathe. Or when you, you hear the words, I've been unfaithful to you. Or when you're working up the the might from your own guilt and turmoil of your own soul as your bones was to waste away in your own sin to come to somebody and say, I've been unfaithful. I have to think those kinds of moments are harder for us humans than losing an arm or even physically losing our life. There's something about the emotional and physiological experience of being up against really profound news of that kind. Psalm 42 and 43 were probably on Jesus' mind and heart in this time. It would have expressed beautifully, if that's the right word, the, the, the emotions of Jesus. This is that famous psalm that begins, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. That's a pretty verse. And then, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Taunted. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you at turmoil within me? My God, my soul is cast down within me. Jesus' soul is cast down and he is, he is very sorrowful. Well, why is Jesus so troubled and sorrowful. Just ponder that for a moment. Why is his soul in so much turmoil at this time? To bring him to do this before his disciples and to say this to his disciples. He hasn't been troubled before at other treacherous things like water, like demons, like crowds that could crush him like religious leaders who held power and could have him killed. Jesus seems pretty tough, kind of invincible, unflappable. Others are afraid and amazed and astounded and perplexed, and Jesus is just moving on. He hasn't been alarmed before. You remember in chapter 8 when Peter said, you are the Christ. And Jesus said, you're absolutely right. And then Jesus said, he must suffer, be handed over and killed. And after three days, he would rise again. 
he seems to be in full command of his own death. He knows what's coming, and as the story moves on, he gets more clear as to how it will come about. He seems determined as he faces Jerusalem and enters the temple and argues with the leaders. He does not seem alarmed, but he is alarmed here. Certainly we know that Jesus is shocked and troubled and sorrowful even to death because he knows that he will soon die. We know how the story goes. And the first readers of the story also knew how this story would go. Those on the ground with Jesus in Gethsemane ought to have known as well how this would go because of what Jesus had said is coming. So we know that it has something to do with his own death. And yet others have died more courageously than this. Not saying Jesus is a weakling here. I'm suggesting that it doesn't quite fit Jesus, as we know him, to struggle uh, before the prospect of his own death, even on the eve of his death. So what is it? Well, wouldn't it be nice if we could hear what Jesus said to his father as he fell to the ground? We've found Jesus praying a couple times already in Mark's gospel. In the first chapter, we found him praying. Everyone was trying to, there's disciples. Well, where are you? Everyone, everyone wants to, to be with Jesus right now, and there are plenty of miracles to perform. Here is the line. And Jesus corrects his disciples, I'm here to preach. Uh, but they'd found him praying. He was off early in the morning. In chapter 6, we find him praying again in a desolate place, getting away from people. That's a good, it's a good note that it's good to get away from people to pray. It's good to pray with people. It's good to pray alone with the Lord. But now, here at the end of the story, we have another prayer. We have a prayer before the end begins. And we get to hear what Jesus says to his father. So when we listen to Jesus, we hear Jesus pleading with his father. He is pleading with his father in verses 35 through 36. Let's listen to what he asks his father to do. We'll start there. Remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. In a verse earlier, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. There's a particular hour that is upon him, the hour of his death. And we get an indication here, a hint as to what he's sorrowful over. Remove this cup from me. He had talked about a cup. Now it was time to drink the cup. Jesus had talked about his death in third person, on and off across the story, even weirdly. The Son of Man will be handed over. The Son of Man will be killed and will rise from the grave. We don't usually talk about ourselves in the third person. Sometimes at home, I refer to myself as the dog, which was confusing when we had an animal in the house, and then I had to clarify, and I'm talking about myself. That's weird to talk about yourself in the third person. But Jesus has been doing that. But here, he speaks about his coming suffering and his death, 
very much in first person and not to those around him, but to his father. What's in that cup? That's the question. What is in that cup? Remove this cup from me. Jesus is sorrowful. Jesus is troubled. Jesus is distressed over what's in that cup. What is in that cup? Well, the wrath of God is in that cup. The imagery of a cup appears on and off through the Old Testament with reference to the outpouring of the anger, the wrath, and the judgment of God on his enemies. Isaiah, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. That's good news. Or through the prophet Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, said, the Lord said to me, take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send to you drink it. And we could go on. In Revelation, this imagery will get picked up. Another angel, the third in verse four, chapter 14, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The New Testament speaks of the wrath of God just the same, even worse. The cup Jesus is talking about, that Jesus, that Jesus asks his Father to remove from him, is the cup of the wrath of God that is given to Jesus to drink to the dregs. What's Jesus doing with that cup? Well, he's told us, in chapter 10, 45, he was fairly specific as to the purpose of his death. These things get clearer and clearer across the story. Even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus does not just come to suffer and to be raised. Jesus comes to suffer, to give his life as a ransom for many which is to say he will die to ransom many. And those whom he ransoms will not suffer under the wrath of God. Jesus comes, he comes to die, to serve, not to be served, to drink this cup of the wrath of God in order that you and I would not suffer under the righteous and just anger of God at you and me. The 21st century, in particular in the West, especially America, we are awfully busy worrying about what we deserve and what we're owed and, and who has what. People, come on. 
don't set your mind to what you have and don't have. Don't set your mind to what you deserve, except to set your mind to this. To this. What you and I deserve is a cup of the wrath of God. And there isn't anyone in here that meets an exception. Forget this, and you lose Christianity, even if you're showing up, even if we're good at doing this thing we do on Sunday morning. You can't lose this cup. You can't forget that this was your cup. You can't forget that Jesus took the cup. And we're given this insight into Jesus here and this moment in this prayer so that we might know how much he did not want in his humanity to drink this cup. He didn't want to do it. Honest to God, as a human, in his human nature, he did not want to do this. Humans die valiantly, courageously, well. No one wants this. The Lord Jesus didn't want this. And he loves us. But he's pleading with his father, take it. Is there any way that the hour can pass from me? Is there any other way? Did we talk it all through? Well, what can we learn from this instance in which Jesus is praying this kind of a prayer? Because it's alarming to find Jesus on the ground like this. It's alarming to find Jesus, the divine son, praying this kind of a prayer to put to, to, to words as a preacher, he didn't want to, and importantly in his humanity. This whole question of how the son relates to the father and how the son is divine and human is filled with mystery. In 451, the Council of Chalcedon was held to try to bring some clarity. And There were heresies spinning around. Don't make too much of these councils as though there was some elite group that came together to tell everyone what to believe. That is not how these things came about. They came together in order to clarify what Christians have and must believe from the scriptures. And these councils were convened on the occasion of heresies and aberrant teaching that was spinning up that was undermining the gospel and the good news. I think it's pronounced the monophysite heresy would suggest that Jesus did not have a human nature and a divine nature. He had one nature. He was not fully God. He was God kinda, and he was a human kinda. And that seems to solve some tensions in your own mind as you try to explain what's happening in the Bible with Jesus and who he is and what he does. But then this conversation with the father, he's clearly distinct from the father, He's clearly divine. He can forgive. They settled at Chalcedon that they they couldn't articulate precisely how the divine and the human nature relate, but they could articulate how they don't relate. There is no confusion in them. There is no mixture of them. There is no division between them. And there is no separation between them. So within those boundaries, you can play around and and reflect on what you see in the Bible. 
But if you begin to divide them or to separate them or to mix them or to confuse them, we've got trouble. We can thank God for faithful, Bible-believing Christians who came together to do their very best to get these things in order for us. And these kinds of heresies prop up with every generation in one form or another. And under so much bad teaching in different places in our own day, there's usually one of these heresies about a layer or two down. There's some problem in the understanding of human, human nature or Jesus and his nature or God and what he's like. And so we can be thankful for the Council of Chalcedon. Maybe I should have had us read from that this morning. Maybe we'll do that at some point as a church on the Lord's Day. And what do we learn from this? Jesus on the ground praying this way. Well, let's just note Jesus is honest with his Father. That's good to see. Jesus is sorrowful and uh, he's not hiding any of it. You can be sorrowful and not hide it. Jesus is fully human. We can see that much. This is a whole human here. And in his human experience and his human will, he did not want to do this. But he was submitting himself as a full human, a second Adam, Adam who did not submit himself to God's will and his humanity. This second Adam does submit himself to the Father's will in his humanity. And that's how you have good news, by the way. Because if you don't have anybody to submit to the Father's will in full humanity, then you don't show up to garden number two with any obedience. You've just got your own. But we can get to garden number two. We can get to the new creation in the end because someone has offered full, perfect obedience on our behalf. And here is Jesus on the ground in the garden, his soul crucified as he submits himself to his father, even as he relinquishes his body the next day. So let me make a comment about Christian radio. Um... Just don't listen to too much of it. I haven't listened to a ton of Christian radio for about 15 years. There were some drives I had, and I would listen to it half the time just to shake my head. Um, some of you may be in Christian radio. It's not all bad. The preaching is the best. Um, but here's the thing. I, I mean, when you're, when, you're, when you're putting commercials for almost anything between songs, when you're trying to hold the attention of an audience in traffic, it just doesn't lend itself very well as a medium to the kind of emotional breadth and depth that we're meant to come in contact with in the Bible. You're not going to be brought into a moment listening to Christian radio where you're feeling any of this. It's just better to be quiet most of the time. There's enough noise coming at us anyways these days, isn't there? It's just okay to be quiet. And in the quiet, to think about how quiet Gethsemane was. So it's not always better to fill your ears with Christian things. Sometimes silence is the most Christian thing you can put in your ears. Just consider that. 
And then if the Christian radio station is especially sanctimonious, just turn it off. <laughs> My point here is not to, to, uh, to turn you off to that so much as it is to encourage you and exhort you to be deliberate. And to not make the mistake that anything going in your ears is, is better than nothing. There's something we come in contact with here in our Lord Jesus that just can't be conveyed in every medium. And perhaps this is one reason why God has given us the preached word. Because preaching, at whatever length we give ourselves to it, that's largely cultural, but in this context, 40 to 50 minutes, 55 sometimes, a little longer sometimes. Not usually shorter because then that messes with the nursery and the, the preschool. And I'm sorry about that if I'm ever too short. The point is, is that preaching, preaching is a medium that when executed on well, ought to be able to take you into the garden. And as it is, it's what God's given to us. This is honest of Jesus before his father. He is ever human before his father and he's horrified. He's horrified before his father. So what does he ask his father for? Take the cup. Take it from me. But then there's something else he asks for. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So that's important to say, isn't it? That's not a, an add-on. It wasn't a have to say it. It is a have to say it, but it's not a have to say it in the sense of uh, sort of a mindless mantra that gets thrown on. We should say, if the Lord wills, Scripture teaches us that. And we should say, if you will, not my will is also a good thing to say. Because when we pray and ask, for God for thing, ask God for things, we are asking according to our own will. And we don't see the whole picture. We aren't infinitely wise. Neither are we good. We're sinners. For a variety of reasons, we should say, yet not what I will, but you will. But even Jesus said it, yet not what I will, but what you will. To our Lord, the Father's will and good purpose was more desirable than for the cup to be taken away. For as bad as the cup was, he desired his Father's will more. Sometimes we'll talk about the obedience of Jesus. It's good to make a distinction between two kinds of obedience. There's Jesus' active obedience and passive obedience. His active obedience is like the obedience that Adam owed to God in the garden. Adam was to positively obey all that God had given him by way of command and trust himself to God wholly. But with the entrance of sin into the world, you and I don't just need a Savior to obey like Adam obeyed. We need a Savior that will do more than that. We need a Savior who will obey when the Father puts our sin on him and not run and not hide. To passively obey, actively, positively fulfill all of God's 
purposes and commands for him, but then passively to suffer under the punishment that everyone born in Adam deserves. And Adam didn't have to obey like that in the garden because there hadn't been sin yet. So Jesus's obedience has a level to it, a dimension to it, that even Adam's obedience required did not. Now, Jesus obeys as a second Adam and also as as a perfect lamb for us. And that language of passive obedience also indicates to us that Jesus isn't being drug along to the cross. He goes willingly and obediently. This here for Jesus, this moment in the garden, teaches us that Jesus wasn't just going to the cross because there really wasn't another option. They had chained him and drug him and hung him. That it was his purpose and his choice. Yes, Jesus was not on autopilot in his life. The divine son just cruising through, obeying perfectly, knocking them all down, uh, just because he's so awesome. No, Jesus was not on autopilot. Jesus volitionally made a choice, a real choice, in that garden to obey in suffering. John Calvin said of this text that Christ amidst fear and sadness was weak, yet without any taint of sin. And this left an impression on the early church who reflected in that letter to the Hebrews uh, that Jesus, with loud cries and tears, cried out with prayers and supplications to his Father. They talked about how, how Jesus, with loud cries, and he was crying. He was crying out with tears to his Father. So we can sympathize with us in our weaknesses and in our horrifying moments. He knows what it is to be up against some great trouble. We also consider what he went through for us. Well, we've considered what he asks for in prayer. Take this cup, but not my will, but yours. Where does he get the strength to pray that kind of a prayer? Where does he get the spiritual strength to both trust the heart of God to do what he will and then trust the ability, the power of God to get him through as promised and he would be raised from the dead to both ask this prayer and to submit himself holy to the God he prays to. Let's consider how he addresses God here. We began with remove his cup, but in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. That's a great way to start a prayer. Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. Jesus had been taunted in his own mind and he would be taunted verbally by his enemies 
that his God is not real, that he is not the son of God. And that Psalm that we read, Psalm 42, reflects on, on how those are mocking him. Who is his God? There is no God. So he prays to his father, his Abba father. There's some loaded history that you may have picked up some teaching on Abba father. You may hear Someone say it means daddy. It's not quite right to make that connection. It is true that this, this word Abba uh, is intimate. But disciples would have used it of a rabbi. And an older son would use it of a father. There's nothing childish or cute or small about it. Father is a good way to address our Father, but not to miss the import of Father. To address the God of heaven and the creator of all things and the eternal Lord as Father is to suggest a relationship of intimacy as a father with a son as it ought to be. And it may not be right with you between you and your son or you and your your father, but at least in saying you know things aren't right, you know that there is a right way. It is, and things were all right here. And so we address our God as Father, and we even add Abba Father as an accent on our intimacy and our closeness. But he doesn't just address God as Father, but he addresses him as the all-powerful one. All things are possible for you. Well, Jesus got a lot done right there in that simple address. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. So start a prayer with a big ask like that. Remove this cup from me. And when your heart is full in communion with God as your Father, and as the one who is all-powerful, who is therefore good towards you and in his purposes, and who is all-powerful, who is mighty and sovereign, who knows all things and can do all things and who has every good intention, then you can say, and not what I will, but what you will. And so Mark doesn't give us the Lord's prayer, but yeah, he does. Matthew gives us what we have traditionally called the Lord's prayer, where the disciples say, how should we pray? And Jesus gives them a prayer to pray, but shouldn't we call that the disciples' prayer? If we call that the Lord's Prayer, what are we going to call this? (laughs) This is the Lord's Prayer. You can call the other one whatever you want, but you get my point. Here is Jesus praying to his Father. And in doing so, he is teaching us how to pray as well. And just consider that Jesus here, on his face, on the ground, praying, feels no doubt a growing disruption in his relationship with his father as his father's face will turn from him and then the father will put his wrath personally on him. But it is exactly at that point of exclusion on the cross from in that moment, his father's favor there to receive his wrath It's in that moment of exclusion that Jesus is precisely inside his Father's will. 
And there are times when we don't know what is going on, but as we entrust ourselves to our Father, we are nevertheless right inside His will. Jesus was able to obey, yes, because He was divine. But the significance of His obedience was His dependence upon His Father as a divine human Son. So don't just think of all that Jesus did as a function of his deity and his humanity as a kind of a subpoint. He was just God, but with a butt with a, with a body on. But all the things he did was he did as God. What he did here, he did as a fully human, fully God man. And in his full humanity, he depended upon his father. Well, what can we learn from Jesus. We've looked at him in distress. We've listened to him plead with his father. Well, what can we learn from him, in particular about weakness and wakefulness? Verses 37 through 42, you can't get away from this command to watch and to pray, and then this, this falling asleep and being woken up and falling asleep. Imagine Jesus waking you up. After he told you not to go to sleep. And then Jesus waking you up after he told you not to fall asleep. It says they didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to, they did not know how to answer him. <laughs> They're just embarrassed. Or ashamed or both. Well, why did Jesus bring these disciples with him into the garden? To commiserate with them? Jesus was having a hard time and he was heading into a hard time, not hardly. For their support, to some extent, yes. He asks them to stay here. He goes a little way off, but he tells them to pray. And he needs companionship like any human, though what he's about to do, he will have to do alone. But I think that at least a main reason that they are with him is in order to teach them. Remember that the disciples are on a path with Jesus to the cross, and Jesus is headed to the cross And he's called them to carry their crosses. And he is training them for what is to come after he has died. Even what's to come in the next day. And Jesus is teaching them some things here. And by taking us through the disciples into the garden with them, Jesus is teaching us some things. He's teaching us about our weakness. Here we have Jesus checking three times on his disciples. We have his disciples falling asleep three times. And the disciples are three of his best. So you and I are weak. We're fully human, but we're not fully divine. You have to feel bad for them. I look at this and think, I'm a little confused. Jesus is giving them a hard time, but does he not appreciate that it is late at night. Their eyes were heavy. They were physically tired. They'd also just eaten the Passover meal. So they were also full. At that meal, they had wine. That wasn't helping. They had reasons to be tired. But there's a point being made here. And Jesus commands them to stay awake and pray. Apparently, were they in connection with Jesus enough and the moment enough, they were able to do that. 
And as it is, Mark and Jesus are making a particular point to the disciples and through them to us. Take a look with me at chapter 13. We were here a few weeks ago. This is a chapter that our minds may immediately go to the return of Jesus, him coming in glory and power and and people being handed over to death. And we may think of the second coming. And I proposed to you that I thought this was just him talking in apocalyptic terms about what was about to happen, but without pinning a timeline on it. Verse 5 of 13, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. In verse 9, be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you'll be beaten in synagogues and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake, which they would, to bear witness before them. To sum all of this up in verses 35 through 37. Well, let me back up to 32. But concerning that day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey, and when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows in the morning. Or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. He says it to all. It applies to us just the same. But you have to wonder. They've had an evening together and a meal. And Jesus has promised before a cock crows, Peter will deny him. And now it's midnight It's the middle of the night in this garden. Morning will come and more events will happen. But here we've got verse 38, chapter 14, watch and pray that you wouldn't enter temptation, that you wouldn't fall away, in other words. Watch and pray. Stay awake. Are you sleeping? You're sleeping. Why are you sleeping? Stay awake and watch and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. This is the same message. This is unfolding what he has warned them of and what he has alerted them to and what he has commanded them to do, all of this is happening right right now. Yes, we are weak. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. We have to stay awake. There are, in every era and in every age, Uh, ideas, vain philosophies, empty philosophy, false religions to figure out and to parse and to understand and to outline and to systematize. And we always have to have our antenna up. Uh, A pastor's job is to instruct in sound doctrine and defend that sound doctrine. But it's possible to, to nerd out too much on what's happening around us. When things are going down, when there is trouble in the world about us, it's okay to read books. It's good to read the news. But did you notice what Jesus asked them to do? He didn't say, I'm going to pray. You get out your Twitter feed. You check this channel and you check that channel. Make sure you subscribe to all these things. 
And make sure you're listening to that right editor- that editorial. No, he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. May I suggest to you that the most important thing that we can do in every age and certainly in our age is to watch and to pray. And in praying, to ask God that we would not enter into temptation. Because you can understand what's happening around us all day long. And that's part of my job and pastor's jobs. But job number one is the ministry of the word and prayers along these lines. Father, keep me from temptation and keep our people and my brothers and sisters from temptation. Because you can understand it and then get swept into it. Jesus' words are made for every age and they're perfect for us today. So are you asleep this morning? (laughs) Someone's probably poking you right now. So now that you're awake... Were you asleep this morning? How do you know if you're asleep? Well, if you're prayerless, that's being asleep. How do you know if you're asleep? If you don't find yourself crying out to God, confessing the weakness of your flesh to love this world and the things of this world? How do you know when you're asleep, when you're swept into temptation, into sin? The thing to do is to wake up and to pray. And this is an invitation to you this morning to do just that. Jesus teaches us that we're weak and he also teaches us to pray. And he teaches us how to pray. This prayer that Jesus prayed would be the strength that he needed to get himself through the next 24 hours. He was making sure he was good and hooked in to his father before his father turned his face away so that Jesus might not give up on his Father's good purpose and will for him. Jesus would give his body up on a hill, Calvary, but he would decide to do that in a valley in Gethsemane. And here he teaches us how to pray after he leaves. And to you, I just offer this by way of conclusion. Friends, in your prayers... Hide nothing. Hide nothing from God. Remember that he is your your Abba Father. And remember that Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God for you down to the dregs, every last drop, so that you could call him Abba Father. So hide nothing from him. Jesus was sorrowful, and that was on his sleeve. Second, ask for anything. For real. If Jesus in this moment asked, Father, take the cup from me, go ahead and ask God for anything. But in doing so, third, submit to him in everything. Do not presume that even a good request that God can by his power fulfill that he must or he will. Trust in his power. And let us trust now in his heart as we pray. Father, we thank you for this moment with Jesus on this page. And uh, we're sad for it. We're shocked by it as Jesus was shocked on the ground. We're moved by it. And I pray that we would be moved to prayer by it. This last moment before Jesus said, it's done, the hour is here. 
let us be on. He had us praying. And he commanded us three times to watch and to pray. And so we, and so we pray. Father, make us a praying church. Make us a church that watches carefully and prays that we would not enter into temptation, that knows the times and where we're at and knows ourselves and our weakness, but even more knows our great Abba Father and his kindness and the Holy Spirit's power to see us through. In Christ's name we pray, amen.